Our Father in heaven, we ask you this morning for one thing. To echo the words of Jesus, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Lord, I personally submit myself to you. I do not need people drawn to me. You do not need them drawn to me. And I will make no effort to do such this morning. And I will submit myself to you and ask that you would be lifted up and draw unto yourself. That is my prayer. I ask it in the name of Jesus as the scriptures have indicated so this morning. Amen. I would like you to turn with me this morning to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John. What I've been studying is not primarily agricultural. What I will present to you this morning is not primarily agricultural. As you will quickly recognize that there's not much about agriculture in John chapter 5. There will be, however, certain lessons that we may gather or glean from the chapter. And I will uh, make three points this morning relevant to us as a group. But it is not, again, primarily agricultural. John chapter 5, let's read together the first five verses. Do not read out loud with me, but read with me, please. Uh, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these, that is in those porches, lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down, supposedly at a certain season, into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Let's go back to that first verse there. We'll summarize some of the things going on here. After the events of chapter 4, the scripture tells us that there was a feast of the Jews. Most scholars, most commentators are in agreement that this was likely the Passover feast of A.D. 29. Now, you will, most of you will recognize that this would be about two years prior to the death of Christ, he being crucified on a Passover weekend. Two years prior to that weekend is the event we're reading about. And it says that Jesus went to Jerusalem. There, just outside, on the north side of the temple complex, inside the city walls, was a pool near the sheep market, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda. Anybody understanding Hebrew here and know what the word Bethesda means? It means, indeed, house of mercy. At this pool, nicknamed Bethesda, there were actually two pools, history tells us, and archaeology as well. And these were no small pools. This was not a uh, little circle in your backyard. Even if you have a little more money and you have a below-ground pool of larger size, it was not that either. There were two very large pools 
larger than the Olympic-sized pool, which measures 165 feet in length. And they were nearly as wide as they were long, and there were two of them. We're not talking a puddle around which a couple people were gathered. There at these large pools, the scripture says, were laying a great multitude of invalids, the blind, the crippled, the paralytic, and lots of them. The story continues, they were waiting for a superstitious belief that an angel would come down and trouble the water. And whichever of the invalids was fortunate enough to get into the pool immediately after it was troubled, he would have the blessed experience of being healed. Now, a little bit of research on the history of these pools or in the construction of Jerusalem itself would tell us or inform us that that is likely not what happened. Now, King David had heavily fortified the city of Jerusalem, and that included an underground and nearly impervious to attack system of underground aquifers and waterways which would feed the city and nourish the city, well, nearly forever if they were attacked. Those of you that have read anything about the destruction of Jerusalem will know that it was a very, very fortified city, and the Romans, in attacking the city, understood clearly well that they would never take that city from the outside alone. And it was, if you read the story, it was the internal dissension in Jerusalem that literally made the city unravel from the inside out. It was worse to be in Jerusalem that day when the Romans were there than it was to be outside in the Roman hands. That's not the point for the morning, but the point is that David had established a large network of underground waterways, this likely being a pool fed by rainwater and spring water. And what was likely to have happened is not an angel jumping down in the pool because he needed a bath, or because God was so stingy that he would only trouble it for one person but rather than on certain occasions, spring water would bubble to the surface. And superstition had turned natural causes into a divine, supposedly, resource. That is called a religious sham, by the way. What's interesting about the story, though, is that so many people had no other source of hope than this little troubling of the pool. And these were no merely sick-voiced people. If you can imagine on a Passover weekend and a superstition like this combined, you would have had the very worst of the physical class in Jerusalem at that pool. And because it was a Passover, you would have had a collection of people from all around the nation seeking to get into that pool because nationwide for these invalids, it was their best chance. And there apparently had been enough Benny Hinnish type stuff going on that people had believed in this superstition. And I'm saying to you that there was no small crowd. John chapter 5 twice repeats the idea that it was a great multitude of people. In fact, it was so dense that when Jesus did heal the man, that he escaped like Houdini into the crowd because the crowd was so thick. 
You know, and I want to make my first point to you this morning. The first of three points. That Jesus, this morning, that is the morning of this story, John chapter 5, likes to be where there are people in need. He doesn't like to be merely where there are people with modest needs or politically correct needs or socially acceptable needs. He likes to be in the place where there are the worst. He likes to be among those who are the most desperate. He likes to be among those who are the most hopeless, the most helpless, the most lost in society. He likes to be among those who are desperately and chronically hurting the very type of people that you and I often like to shun. Because anybody who's been around death has had the experience of being around a very uncomfortable emotional experience. I remember being in uh, Lithuania in a woman's home that had cancer. She was very poor. And if you have ever, and it was the first and only time that I have ever experienced this, but if you have ever smelled death on a living person, the room reeked of it. It was distinct. It was un unmistakable. It was nothing I have ever smelled before. And it was, frankly, very uncomfortable for me to be there. To be in front of the living, though she was dead. I don't know if any of you are like that or would admit to being like that. But when we are around those who are frail, we are reminded uncomfortably of our own frailty and frequently would prefer to be somewhere else. It was not Jesus, though. There was a man there, verse 5 tells us, that was uh, infirm. He was an invalid for 38 years. And I will read you from the Desire of Ages, page 202, if you want to look it up later. The Savior saw that morning one of a case of supreme wretchedness. This guy, among all the bad, was the worst. And Jesus, inside his heart, you know what was wanting to go on here, Jesus looked on that multitude of invalids, and he wanted to heal every single person in that congregation. But he was restrained because there was a certain class of religious folk that were following him. And so he, in his unwillingness to unnecessarily provoke the Pharisees, chose one. And he chose the worst one. A challenge to me and you is to become comfortable as farmers with those who are in need. Not the ones that bring us money, not the ones that sympathize with us theologically or philosophically or economically or vocationally, not to sympathize merely with those people that we feel comfortable around, but to socialize and reach out the hand like Christ to those who are in need. Even the very worst of those people. This man described as alone and friendless, his disease in a great degree the result of his own sins. 
And those people, for me, become, frankly, the most difficult to deal with because I want to look at you and say, brother, you did it. You know you did it. You knew what you were doing, and you deserve full well what you got. And I just want to say, maybe getting what you deserve will lead you to repentance. Alone and friendless for 38 years. That man that morning found a friend. Suffering, as it's written there in the Desire of Ages, long years of misery. Verse 6 tells us that when Jesus saw him lying there, the Jesus that you and I should know, leaned his precious face over that of the paralytic. You know, we're all that paralytic. The only question that I have for myself, I've been asking it for two solid weeks, is do I know I'm that man? You see, the Pharisees were equally as sick, perhaps actually more so. But they thought they were whole and didn't need a physician. And what separates them from him is the fact that they could walk. And what separates them from him a little further is the fact that that guy knew he was bad and they thought they were whole. And it's the temptation and Adventist now of 17 years, looking back on what I was, I conclude that I'm no longer that person. That I'm no longer desperate. That I'm no longer crippled. It's not true. The Pharisees and their religious purity were more in need than that man laying flat on his back. This morning, there are people here at the pool of Bethesda. There are people around you sitting at the pool of Bethesda. You see, those of us who have who've got issues look for solutions. We look for healing to our issues in what things? Some people go for money. That'll fix my problems. Some people go for the like-minded. If I have social, emotional support, that'll fix my emotional needs. Some of us go for careers. Some of us go for popularity. Some of us go for position and power. Some of us go for sports and entertainment. But I would guarantee nearly from a human perspective that everybody here has a pool of Bethesda that they are seeking desperately to find some healing from. And it is as much a religious superstition as John chapter 5, and it will not heal you. I would even go so far as to say that we could attempt to make farming that remedy. But folks, I've seen a lot of bad people come 100 miles from the Coke machine. So remote, they don't have access to the basic necessities of life, but their sin is right there in their heart. I have seen homeschoolers. I have seen farm kids. I have seen people from the remote regions of life 
that are miraculously, mysteriously rather, just as bad as anybody I've seen in a city. And we forget very easily that sin started in a garden. In a perfect man and a perfect woman. And we forget very easily that sin was probably conceived in the heart of Satan as he picked from the tree of life, hoping he would live a little bit longer. In the garden of God. There's no salvation in farming. There's no salvation in hard work, good as it is. I'm not belittling what he's saying. There's no salvation in hard work. There's no salvation in nature or being connected to nature. Salvation comes from the guy that you see in nature. The guy that you meet as you're pruning the the tree and you say, Lord, prune the heart. There's no healing in that pool. Nobody's going to jump in and be made whole of whatever disease they had. They'll be whole when that man looks down face to face. Jesus was where there was a need. He chose to be there intentionally. He may be on his way to church that morning intentionally detoured and chose that pool because he knew what he would find there. And my challenge to you as farmers, my challenge to myself that God offers me is to make the farm a place that reaches out not to those that will provide for the pocketbook, not merely to those who will pad the ministry, but to reach out to those that only the farm can reach out to because they need what you have to offer. I like verse 6. When Jesus saw him lie. Perhaps what I'm saying to you seems a little bit depressing. Essentially, I'm saying to you, you should live your life a recognized perpetual invalid. That's not very encouraging, is it? Well, I will take a life of invalidism. Is that a word? I'm not sure, but you know what I mean. I will take a life of paralysis if on a repetitive basis I get to look at up at the face of Jesus looking down on me. I will take a life of paralysis, recognized wretchedness, if on a regular basis he will speak the words to me, will you be made whole? I'll take a life of recognize that I'm absolutely nothing and I'm an embarrassment to society like this man undeniably felt if I get to have the experience that he had on a regular basis. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I went down to San Diego. We're staying in a hotel. We swam in a pool with my kids that had enough chlorine in it to kill every uh, microorganism on my body. It was horrible. The things you'll do for your kids. And we had two hours of fun. It was great. You know, they don't get to spend much time with me like they want to, you know. No kid gets enough time with their dad. So my skin felt all tight. It just felt funny, you know. 
went up to the hotel room, was going to take a shower, and uh, pardon me for disclosing my personal hygiene habits, but I n virtually never wash my face. It's just something I don't do a lot, and I, I think that people overwash. They want to strip their body of every single oil that it wants to exude, and I'm just not into, like, ultra hygiene. I take a bath every day. Don't go, don't go to extremes here. But my skin felt so tight, and I'm like, this is really uncomfortable, so I'm going to wash my face. I reach for the soap, and my wife says, no, don't use that hotel soap. Use my facial soap here. She gave me her facial soap, some Neutrogena natural product. So I wash my face, and a day later, I got these three big red spots that break out on my forehead. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is sick. I got to preach next weekend. This is two weeks ago. I preached last weekend, too. And I just knew it. I walked in the door of the church last Sabbath, prayed with the elders. I had been there before. They knew I don't normally have tattoos on my forehead. And uh, they said, boy, what did you get into? And I was reading this story. And I was already mentally embarrassed. And I said, next weekend, i got to go somewhere else. And I said, sure enough, somebody's going to ask me, what happened to your forehead? Those of you that asked me here, I'm not picking on you. But I felt a small portion of this guy's embarrassment, deep, public. And I was thinking about this story and how Jesus associated with those who would otherwise have been so embarrassed. And I said, Lord, I want you to teach me to reach out to those people. I want you to teach me to make our farm at Fresno Adventist Academy a place that reaches out to the community, especially those in need that others don't want to have anything to do with. So Jesus looks down on the guy sitting, laying on his mat. And the guy looks up at Jesus and hears the voice. Will you be made whole? That was a provocative question. Jesus very well knew the answer, not a flying chance. He asked that question on purpose to provoke in the guy's heart a greater sense of need. And I can picture, and I invite you to use your imagination with me this morning. I see the guy, obviously not on the brink of the pool, not on the banks of the pool, but somewhat removed from the pool, laying flat on his back among the crowd. Jesus leans over, says, will you be made whole? And the man lifts his head, he looks down at the pool, and he remembers how often he had tried to get there, how often the pool had been troubled, and he came just a little short. And for that brief moment of hope, there was an equally quick response, not going to happen. I've tried it before. And I see the guy putting his head down in sorrow back on the stone floor. And he looks up at Jesus, and he says, Sir, I have no man. 
when that water is troubled to put me into the pool. And with a gasp of sorrow, he says, but when I'm coming, somebody comes down before me. And you know, this guy had absolutely no faith. This guy had absolutely no faith, and that's evidenced by the fact that Jesus did not ask him to exercise faith. He was so bad that he did not have the capacity to believe. And many of us, uh, forgive me for saying it again, many of us will turn faith into a virtue that merits our salvation. But you couldn't have faith if Jesus didn't give it to you. And you couldn't exercise the faith if he didn't put in the willingness to you. And the guy had none. And so Jesus didn't, like the clay story, say, go wash and come seeing. He didn't say, your faith has made you whole. He didn't say, if thou wilt believe, all things are possible. He didn't say any of that. He said to the man, frankly, bluntly, rise up and walk. Divinity willed the frailest of humanity. The most broken and wretched man at that pool, incapable of responding to divine grace, was willed by divinity to healing. And that's exactly where me and you need to be. Looking any other place is futile. Looking for any other remedy is superstitious, even religious foolery. Wilt thou be made whole? His answer was no. Jesus' answer was yes. I say to you again, I will take that moment of desperation many times in my life if I can look up at the voice of the face and the voice of Jesus and hear him say, stand up and walk. I will take that emotional baggage, the realization that I am a wretched sinner on a day-to-day basis, if I hear Jesus say, stand up and walk, if I have the experience of feeling life in parts of my body that I have not felt for many, many years, I will take that again. If I have the opportunity to stand in that crowd of likewise wretched people and have them ask me, what happened to you? And be able to tell the story that I met Jesus. I will take wretchedness and desperation as my recognized lot in humanity to be able to have this guy's continued experience in life. Jesus' ministry was to the people in need. Question one, are you in need? Question number two, will you help those in need? As farmers... I've heard several discussions this weekend about the seventh year Sabbath. And I want to phrase this in the context of the story of John chapter 5. Because Exodus chapter 23, if you turn there with me, smartphone or iPhone or paper Bible or iPod, iPad, whatever you have. Exodus chapter 23 tells us the purpose of the seventh year Sabbath. And as farmers, I think we often focus on the technical aspects of the benefits of the seventh-year Sabbath rest for the land itself. I would, uh, I would propose to you that's not the primary reason for that sabbatical. Exodus 23 tells us, verse 11, 
the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat, and that what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat, in like manner thou shalt deal with the vineyard and with your olive yard. That the primary purpose, not the only purpose, but the primary purpose of the Sabbath rest for the land was not what you could get out of it for your farm after letting it lie fallow. That's selfish. But what you could give to those who didn't have anything at all the remaining six years that you were farming your bounty. That for just that little slice of time, on that seventh year, the poor could walk throughout your land and see God face to face in nature like you got to do every day the previous six years. Leviticus chapter 19 says essentially the same thing. Talking about gleaning the corners of your fields. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 and verse 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of your field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean the vineyard, neither shalt thou glean every grape in the vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. God stamps the command with the phrase, you serve me. And he does that 45 times in the book of Leviticus. Command followed by identity of your servitude. I am the Lord your God. Do this. If somebody was on my farm, I'm just being honest with you, transparent here, walking through my fields, picking the stuff that I had to sell tomorrow, I would come unglued. (laughs) In a very sanctified way, of course. But God strategically, strategically commanded Israelite agronomists to consider the poor on an annual basis. And then especially once every seven years. So above all people, farmers have an obligation to care for those in need. Above the, uh, above the Dorcas, above the welfare ministries of different churches, above the public health department and every city and, you know, et cetera, organization, farmers have an obligation to minister to the people in need, particularly the poor, by the, uh, the biblical command of the Savior. In uh, historical sketches, you read the following. These commands were to impress the people with the fact that it was God's land, which they were only permitted to possess for a time. That he was the rightful owner, he was the original proprietor, and that he would have, quote, special consideration made for the poor and the unfortunate. That's a command to farmers. Historical sketches, page 165, paragraph 2. You just read it, though, in Leviticus 19 and Exodus 23. Let's move on to the rest of the story. John chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus tells the man, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately this faithless man was made whole by divine command. He took up his bed just like he was commanded, and he walked. Oh, boy. And on the same day. What's it say? Same day was the Sabbath. 
So the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, I can't replicate their tone. Obviously disgust. It is the Sabbath day, excuse me. And it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He responded in a way that any sane individual would respond. If you were just healed and the guy that healed you told you to take up your bed, you would do it. (laughs) And I would too. That's what he said to them. The guy that healed me said, carry my bed. Okay, no problem. I'm carrying my bed. They, of course, naturally wanted to know, and it says it in verse 12, which man said to you, take up your bed and walk? They knew exactly who this was, by the way. They had been following Jesus for months They knew the identity of that mysterious and unidentified healer and were not looking for the purposes of their own education. They were looking for the purpose of confirmation that was satanically inspired. But the guy didn't know because the multitude was in that place. Afterwards, Jesus finds him in the temple and says unto him, Behold, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. And praise the Lord. Because even when stuff is your fault, God doesn't care. I'll heal you all the same. I know you did it. I didn't need to ask you if you did it. Stand up and walk. Somebody say praise the Lord. It's not a person in this room hasn't gotten out of life exactly what they deserved. And then God gave you exactly what you didn't deserve. The man, ignorant nonetheless, didn't know what was going on. He told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And I want you to read very carefully with me verse 16. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. You will find no other reason given in scriptures why Jesus was hated by the religious leaders more than that verse right there. That verse is unequivocally, unarguably clear. And as a premise of Adventist biblical interpretation, all clear texts on any given subject are more important than any unclear text. This is a crystal clear text. Jesus had a different Sabbath-keeping philosophy than the religious leaders did, and they hated him because of that. They didn't care that he had healed the guy. They didn't care that he was a teacher. They didn't even care that he claimed to be the Messiah. What they cared about predominantly, and if you read the four Gospels and look for this trend, you will notice it early and repetitively and consistently that they hated this man because their ideas of Sabbath observance were very different than his. Again, I read to you verse 16. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Verse 17 is more staggering yet because Jesus' response, excuse me, response was that my father works hitherto and I work. And they, listen very carefully, only sought the more to kill him. 
if you're sitting with me at lunch this afternoon and you ask me if I've had enough and I would, if I would like some more, it implies that I already had what? If, which I wouldn't do it today anyway because I want to keep my voice, you, you offer me dessert and you say, did you like that and would you like some more? It implies that I already had what? If they hated him because he claimed to be divine, more, that implies they already had what? That's stunning. They hated Jesus more because of the way he kept the Sabbath than the fact that he claimed to be divine. Let's read the rest of the verse, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Secondary issue to his Sabbath-keeping practices. I want to make point number two to you this morning. That is that Jesus' life is a pattern to be followed. His life itself is a pattern. His ministry is a pattern. His character is our pattern. Everything about Jesus Christ is a pattern to me and you. There is no other pattern for any other ministry. There is no other pattern for character. There is no other pattern for personality. There is no other pattern for caring and reaching out to other people than this pattern right here. I could give a whole sermon on this, but I want to clarify in brief fashion, exactly what I'm referring to. Most specifically, Jesus' life is a pattern of precise parallel to those that live at the end of time. I want you to follow this pattern. You will recognize it very distinctly from having read our prophetic material, the Bible, particularly Revelation 13 and 14. Jesus had a conflict with religious leaders over the way he kept the Sabbath. Strike prophetic familiarity number one. The only difference between him and them and us today is over in Jesus' time. It was the way the Sabbath should be kept. In our current society, the conflict will be over the day. But pattern number one. Number two, the religious leaders strike up hatred because of his Sabbath-keeping practices. They lay aside their animosity with the religious liberals and form a relationship with those of a different ideological party. They suddenly became tolerant of those who differed with them theologically. They extended this one step further and aligned themselves with the political class of Romans known as the Herodians, Strike prophetic familiarity number two. A religious political alliance that annihilated the wall of separation between church and state. Does this sound familiar so far? Number three, they forced politicians who were otherwise unwilling to put to death that man who they differed with in regard to the Sabbath and it's keeping. Does this sound familiar? Folks, I want to make a statement here. I encourage you to read the Bible. Not because you don't, 
but because the Bible, its teachings are profoundly deep and rich and thorough. And the Adventist doctrinal house is built solidly upon Scripture. Forget the whole other book. I love the whole Bible, but hear me out. Jesus' life by itself is enough to teach us what will happen at the end of earth's history. And if I had no other book of the Bible than the four Gospels, I would get through life beginning to end and stand on the pearly gates. I better not stand on the pearly gates. Stand inside those pearly gates with just those four books. Now, I love all the rest of it. But Jesus' life is a perfect pre-fulfillment of Revelation chapter 13 and 14. That's point number two. Jesus' life is a pattern, especially for those that live at the end. So if they hated him so much, why didn't they just kill him? You understand, I'm sorry, there was a response there, but it wasn't loud enough for me to discern it. Why didn't they want to kill Why didn't they just kill him? Ah, uh, I heard it right here in the front row. The Pharisees were afraid. To make this perfectly clear, they wanted to kill him in John 5 right on the spot. But you understand what just happened? Jesus just healed a man that had been crippled for 38 years. And once that man, the paralytic, figured out who had healed him, I guarantee you he told other people, paralytics, what had just happened just like he told the Pharisees because that's what people naturally do when they have experiences like that. And what the Pharisees had on their hand was nearly a riot. And they were prevented by the crowd drawn to the loving and compassionate friend of sinners. And they couldn't get near Jesus. And I would ask you at this point, what will Christians at the end of time do if their ministry to the public doesn't garner the same level of preventative popularity? If all we are about is serving ourselves, when Christians become unpopular, what would prevent other people from saying, just get rid of them. As much as Jesus was the divine theologian, as much as he was the perfect Sabbath keeper and the greatest preacher and the greatest teacher and all these other things, the one thing that made the difference in his public ministry was the fact that it was a public ministry and he loved people who were broken. You remember what year this is? A.D. 29. Do you understand what that means? Because as I thought about this, I'd never thought about this before. But as it hit my brain, that Jesus' love for the people preserved his ministry for a solid two years. They would have killed him on the spot. And he would not have filled, fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel. Jesus did not use Houdini-like tricks. He did not vanish like David Copperfield. It was his public ministry that saved his ministry. 
Let's look at this a little bit further. We're going to end with this here. Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19, verse 47. This now is sometime, uh, the date is hard to nail down, but this is sometime close to the Passover of A.D. 31. Luke chapter 19, verse 47, he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. That's not new, we already know that. But they couldn't find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear. But let's take this one chapter further. Go with me to Luke chapter 20. This is somewhat yet closer to the Passover. But it's not yet the Passover. Luke chapter 20, verse 19 says, The chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, right then, right there, on the spot, sought to slay, sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people. So what'd they do? Nothing. Jesus had spoken a couple parables. He gave the parable of the vineyard. And the Pharisees recognized, you guys know the parable of the vineyard, right? Landlord lets out the vineyard. The people that are taking care of the vineyard don't really take care of the vineyard. And they recognized in that parable that Jesus was talking to them, the religious leaders. And so they were furious at the concept that this was going to happen to them. And they wanted to kill him on the spot, but they were afraid and did nothing. Most of us treat popularity as though it's a bad thing. And indeed it is if that's what motivates you to live your life the way you live your life. But if you live your life the right way and God grants you favor with the people and you become popular, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, it will probably be a good thing. Luke chapter 22. I'll show you the extent to which this goes. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 is also paralleled in Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to have you looking at Luke 22. I'm going to interject a few verses from Matthew 26 along the way. Luke 22, verse 1 says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. Matthew chapter 26 says, It was two days away. So we are now at Passover weekend, A.D. 31. Jesus' days from hanging on the cross. This is the end of his ministry. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh two days from the Passover. And Jesus says, verse, uh, I'm sorry, this is in Matthew. Jesus says to the disciples, the Son of Man will be betrayed to be crucified. While Jesus is talking to the disciples, Luke 22, verse 2, tells us that the chief priests and the scribes, now I'm going to switch back to Matthew, were assembled in the house, the palace, of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they were conspiring together that, that the evening, two days before the crucifixion, two days before the Passover, rather. They were conspiring in Caiaphas' house, palace, what they might do with Jesus. But verse 2, Luke chapter 22 says, they feared the people. Do you realize that what this verse is saying is that even when the time that Jesus' appointed time had come, that the Pharisees' efforts 
to crucify the Messiah, to do him harm, had been so handicapped by his public ministry, his favor with the people, that even when it was time to kill him, they were incapable of doing it. Absolutely handcuffed because Jesus did good to people that needed him. I want you to get the full extent of how potent this ministry was because I want you to get the full extent of how handcuffed the Pharisees were, incapable of doing anything by reading verse 3. And I believe the Bible puts verses together in specific order for specific instruction. They feared the people, verse 2 says. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot. And you know what happened. What this passage is suggesting to us, that Jesus' public ministry, his ministry of good, his ministry of love, his ministry of compassion to the desperate, the wretched, the broken, the hopeless, all the other adjectives you can throw at that class of people was so effective that even in the palace of the high priest, they couldn't do anything with Christ because of his popularity until a certain insider decided to pull the rug. And that also sounds a little bit prophetic. Recognize that? Yes, it does. I want to make point number three to you. I've been making it already. That Jesus' popularity among the people was so potent that it stalled for two years their efforts to shut him down. What if Christians only take a doctrinal approach to evangelism? What if Christians only take an intellectual, cerebral approach to changing the theological opinions of other people rather than ministering to their needs? What if I put myself in a position where all people think of me is the guy who wanted to change the way I think? What if they think of me as the guy who only wanted to tell them when what they believed was wrong? What if they think of me as the guy who only told them when they did something wrong? And I'm not insinuating, I'm not hinting that anybody here is like that, although I know that if you're anything like me, there's a high probability that you're all like that. (laughs) And I said to you at the beginning, I'm preaching to myself. For 10 years, I was in denominational employment. I've given Bible studies. I've knocked on doors, sold books, preached and preached and preached and preached in various different forms. And I have been guilty of thinking that what I have to say is not as important, excuse me, is more important and what I have to do. And I have realized, I am realizing, that God is calling upon us to serve those in need and allow them the opportunity to ask, why do you love me 
so much. And you will have at that point all the opportunity to share that you could possibly imagine. Adventist farmers, Christian farmers of all types, have the potent opportunity to demonstrate that Christianity is a ministry of love to people in need, particularly to the poor, particularly to the most wretched. If God could fix Moses' messed up brain with some sheep, then maybe I should be willing to take some messed up people onto my farm with the intention of helping them or allowing God to help them. Perhaps I can find ways on my farm to demonstrate that Christians are a people of such immense value that the local community could not possibly tolerate the idea of me not being around. In spite of the fact that certain religious leaders differ with me theologically and would just as well be happy had I been exterminated from the face of the planet. They would resist such urges and say, "Um, no, thank you, we would actually rather keep him because he's done a whole lot more than you ever have for me. Recently at our church, we had a guy come off drugs. He was on meth. I get to tell you that people were uncomfortable with him. He found another church where people helped him find a job, where he was given an opportunity to share his experience in ministry and reach out to people that were formerly just like him. Thankfully, some of us had tried to do something for him, and there is a bridge of connection yet between us and him. But so often we drive people away when they make us uncomfortable. And my challenge to you this morning as farmers is threefold. Is number one, to do a public service to those people around you and show them the face of Jesus on their crippled, wretched, depressed bodies. That deserved a much more hearty amen. Amen. My second challenge is to you is to realize that Jesus' life is a pattern for those that live at the end. And that you, therefore, have the opportunity of following the pattern. And thirdly, that if you will do this in your communities, you could make it ridiculously difficult for people to counter your evangelistic efforts. Let me say that again. If we will follow the pattern ministry of Jesus, we can make it ridiculously, uncomfortably, annoyingly difficult for people who would oppose us and make it miraculously and gloriously wonderful for Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Do you understand what the Holy Spirit's been trying to share with me? I'm not expecting anybody here to do this simply because I've said it. But I would ask of you 
to carefully, intentionally contemplate the ministry and the opportunities that you as individuals, some of you probably aren't farmers, you have individual opportunities too, to strategically reach out to those in need and to copy in your life the pattern. To copy the pattern. And when the time comes for the fulfillment of Revelation 13 and Revelation 14, there will be a crowd. There will be a riot in the waiting. Waiting for those who would seek to do God's people harm. That doesn't change the outcome, but it does make the, the path to the outcome more difficult for those who would seek to hinder God's cause. I've been praying about this for several days. This morning, I'd like to close with an appeal. I want to clarify appeals. This is a public appeal. And I'm asking individuals here to make a decision. But it is not an appeal for every person. And I want you to listen to me carefully. Someone here this morning is lying on their mat by the pool of Bethesda. I don't know what you did. It doesn't matter what you did. It's gotten you where you are. But you've been seeking for healing in your soul at a source that will never come through for you. Perhaps you don't know Jesus yet. Perhaps you've not surrendered your heart to him. And you've been looking for the healing that only he can provide in places where you won't get it. If you're already a Christian and you know you're a Christian, this appeal is not for you. But I believe the spirit, the face of Jesus is looking down on us this morning and asking the question, will you be made whole? And if you have an illness, I'm not talking physical, maybe that too, and you want to say, Lord, I want to be made whole, I'm going to ask you to come and stand right up here. Perhaps God's been speaking to you, been searching for healing in the wrong place. You've been looking for me and friends. You've been looking for me in your occupation. You won't find me there. But this morning, I'm looking down on you, and I'm asking you, will you be made whole? If you're out there, come forward up here. Jesus wants to greet you with his face. He wants to greet you with his voice. He wants to say to you, my son, my daughter, I love you. Come up here to me. If that's you this morning, come stand right up here, right in the front. You want to make that decision, Lord, I need to be made whole. I want to be made whole. Who's out there that'll come? Anybody here? Spirit speaking to you. First time decision, need healing. Anybody out there like that? God bless you, brother. Come up here. Jesus, listen, folks, Jesus loves the desperate. He loves the broken. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be shy. Join the crowd at the pool. Say, Lord, I'm desperate. I need you. I want you. 
Nowhere else to go. Come up here. It's your Jesus moment right here, face to face with him. Look down on that gentle face, he says. I want to make you whole. Nobody else can do it. I bless you, sisters and brother. Been an Adventist a long time, been an Adventist a short time. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian, I don't know. Jesus at the pool where the worst are. Jesus at the pool where the needy are. God bless the young man right here. God wants you to tell a story. Is a story of healing for you. Is a story of compassion for you. You can go home and tell your friends, I found something I've looked all over the place for. I found it in one man. Salvation in no other. Anybody else? God bless you. Another sister, two sisters here. God bless you, sister. Anybody else? Jesus needs the heart. Jesus doesn't care about the body. I need the heart. Make me whole, Lord. Make me whole. Anybody else? One more in the back. Brother here. Come on up here. Say, Jesus, touch me. Speak the word. I'm faithless. I don't have it in me. Like the man that said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I can't do it. Will it in me. Don't come to be seen. Don't come because there's other people up here. You and Jesus. There was a whole multitude there that morning. Jesus touched one man. Private moment. Amazing. Jesus escaped without there being a scene. Anybody else? You and Jesus. Right now, Lord, make me whole. Let's pray. Father in heaven. broken, empty. We've tried all the things. We've searched in all the places. And Lord, we didn't even go looking for you. You showed up that morning of your own initiative. You searched for us when we didn't know you existed. We searched for you, excuse me, you searched for us when we didn't know you could heal, but we had heard your name. Maybe we heard you existed, but you came and found us. And maybe you found us because we were bad. Maybe you found us because we were the worst. But you came and found us. And you came and sought for us. And Lord, here this morning are these people that recognize that they've looked in other places and so far haven't found it. And this morning, I ask you to find them and touch them and speak to them. And Father, for all of us as a whole, you're our pattern. As farmers, you laid it out. As people, you've laid it out. And we want to follow you. We want to be like you and love people like you and minister like you. And we ask, Lord, that you would come to all of us and make us capable because none of us of ourselves are like you. Father, I, I thank you for this story. You've touched my heart for two weeks now with this. And I want to thank you to show, for showing yourself to us in the scriptures and 
teaching us how much you love. And Father, may you today on the Sabbath, because this story happened on a Sabbath day, remind us that above all days, today is the day where you ask that question. Will you be made whole? And Lord, our, our answer, our will is yes, Lord. Make us whole. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your power. Glory to your name and let us all say, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.